Well, if you have uh, your Bibles with you, if you return with me to the book of Haggai in the Old Testament, uh, one of the first things to say about Haggai is it's perhaps difficult to find in your Bibles. It's the second uh, shortest book in the Old Testament after Obadiah. But to help you, if you have uh, one of the green uh, church Bibles here, it's page uh, 948. And in the large print Bibles, 1473. And if that doesn't help, it's three books back from Matthew's Gospel, and then you'll find it. Uh, If you haven't got a a Bible, there are some green ones at the back. Uh, It'd be really helpful to have one so you can follow along uh, with what we are doing. Uh, So we're starting a new series in uh, this book of the Old Testament. We're going to be in it for about uh, for five weeks, um, and we're going to begin in Haggai chapter one. So I'm going to read the first eleven verses uh, of Haggai. So hopefully you've had time uh, to turn there. Let me read Haggai chapter one, verses one to eleven. In the second year of King Darius. On the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Josedach, the high priest. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty? Because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with your own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields. And the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the olive oil, and everything else the ground produces, on people and livestock, and on all the labor of your hands. This is God's word. And I've called this uh, sermon uh, Misplaced Priorities. Misplaced Priorities. Uh, Before uh, I moved here, uh, I worked in uh, IT, and I traveled around uh, testing computer software for various 
uh, banks and insurance companies. And often I'd have to, to run uh, big teams doing these projects. And so I quite regularly had to go for a job interview. And one particular job interview I remember uh, really well uh, was one that involved an aptitude test. I don't know if you've ever had a job where you've had to do an aptitude test. Uh, but this aptitude test had various things I had to do. Uh, I, I had to interpret data. Uh, I had to do uh, the dreaded role play. So I had to, um, there was a, a person who was in some kind of crisis, and I had to manage them in their crisis in a, in a role play, which I hate doing that kind of thing. Uh, I had to uh, look at algorithms and, and work out what should happen when you put in different inputs. And I also had to do uh, what was called the in-tray exercise. And this in-tray exercise had a, 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 about 10 different tasks, and I had to put them in order of the priority that I would do the tasks in, and then justify why I put them in that order the in-tray exercise. Now, I didn't get this job. Can you believe I failed on the role play? My acting was not very good. Unbelievable, isn't it? But I want us to think for a moment about the in-tray exercise. Because in our lives, we all have an in-tray of a kind, don't we? We all have to prioritize where we allocate our resources and all of us have an explanation for allocating them in the way that we do. And in fact, the Bible teaches us that, a little bit like my interview, we have to give an account as to how we have prioritized our lives. We have to give one day an account to God. And the question the book of Haggai is going to ask us over these weeks is this. Is God the priority in your life? Or, in the words of Jesus, are we, are you seeking his kingdom first? That's what we're going to be thinking about in this book over these weeks. Uh, we're going to be thinking about what it means to seek his kingdom first, what are the blessings of seeking his kingdom first, and how we can seek his kingdom first. But first of all, I think what Haggai intends us to see is that putting God first is the way that we bring glory to God, and in doing so, living the life that we are made to live. Seeking God's kingdom first is what we're made for. But before we look at anything else in Haggai, it's worth looking at where does this, uh, this prophecy fit in the story of the Bible. Well, a long time ago, in an empire far, far away, the people of God had gone into exile from the land that God had promised them. It was 586 BC, and the Babylonians, led by King Nebuchadnezzar, had destroyed the temple in Jerusalem and carried most of the people of Israel away. But in 539 BC, the Babylonians were defeated by the Persians led by King Cyrus. And King Cyrus issued a decree that allowed people to return to their own lands and worship their own gods. 
Uh, many of you uh, will be aware that this, uh, a version of this decree is found in the British Museum in London. Uh, and many of us went there a few years ago and saw the Cyrus Cylinder where a version of this decree is written. But for God's people, this means that they can go back to Jerusalem and begin to rebuild the temple and worship God. And in the Old Testament of the Bible, the worship of God was based in and around the temple. This was where the the presence of God was said to dwell. This was where sacrifices were made for sin and offerings were made for thanksgiving and so on. The, The worship of God was based in and around the temple. And so the rebuilding of the temple was really important. It was the priority for God's people. Now, for Christians today, we don't worship in the temple. God dwells in his people, the church of Jesus Christ. And so our priority for worship is not centered around a physical building, but but around working in the project of building the church through making disciples. And we do this by being his disciples, which involves sharing our faith with others. Now, some of the Jewish people in those days began to return to Jerusalem around this time, led by a man named Shashbazar, and they began to rebuild the temple. They got the foundations laid, but then the work came to a standstill. Opposition came, and the Persian king Artaxerxes said that the work needs to stop. And so in 536 BC, the work finished. It ended with just the foundations built and the rest of it just a ruin. But 16 years later, in 520 BC, Artaxerxes was dead and Darius was now king. And around this time, another wave of Jewish people began to go back to Jerusalem, led by a man named Zerubbabel. And we'll meet him in this prophecy. And all of this history is found in the book of Ezra. And it's at this time that we meet Haggai. And he encouraged the people to get on with building the temple. So in Ezra chapter 5 and verses 1 and 2, we read this. Now Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the prophet, a descendant of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, son of Josedak, set to work to rebuild the house of God in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. This is speaking here about what Haggai writes in his prophecy, you see? And the temple ended up being completed in 516 BC, and what we see in the book of Haggai is how he supported the work in his prophesying. So if you look at verse 1 of Haggai, we get a bit of this context. The date is actually the 29th of August, 520 BC. It's a very specific stamp. And God speaks through Haggai to the governor and the high priest. Zerubbabel is the governor. He was a descendant of King David, and we'll see his importance later on in the prophecy. And Joshua He was responsible for the temple worship. And together, uh, Zerubbabel and Joshua 
are the representatives of the people of God. And so when Haggai speaks to these two men, he is speaking to the whole of God's people. It's a bit like today. If someone was to to call King Charles and our Prime Minister and give them a message, they're really giving a message to all of us because they represent our nation, you see? Same kind of thing going on here with Zerubbabel and Joshua. And the first message that Haggai speaks to God's people is all about misplaced priorities. How do we begin to put God first in our lives? How do we begin to seek his kingdom first? And the first thing Haggai calls them to do and calls us to do is this. Renounce your excuses. Renounce your excuses. This is verses 1 to 6. Haggai in verse 2 speaks of what the Lord Almighty says. By the way, Lord Almighty here is a common name in the Old Testament, and it's a favorite of Haggai's. It it speaks of God as being at the head of armies or angelic hosts. That's why sometimes in other translations he's called the Lord of hosts. He's the head of the heavenly hosts. And in in this period of time after the exile, it speaks of God as as a God of great power and of great might. And Haggai, using his name here, is saying, this is a God you do not ignore. This is the Lord Almighty. He's not a God you can just put away. He's not a God you can ignore. He's the great Lord Almighty. This is what he is saying. And he's telling them to renounce their excuses. And they were making excuses all the time, for not doing what they should be doing. I don't know if you remember your school days. I know for some of you, it's probably quite a a way away. But I think whenever any of us were at school, uh, we all know what it's like to make excuses uh, for not doing our homework. Have you ever made an excuse for not doing your homework? These days, it's easier, right? The number one excuse I reckon is the Wi-Fi went down right? I mean, that's the excuse people make the most. There's no Wi-Fi, so I couldn't log on. Um, you know, that's, that's, that's it. But when I was at school, there was no such thing as Wi-Fi, and so we had to come up with real excuses. And the one that would come up quite often was the excuse of, my dog ate my homework. How many have used that as an excuse uh, for not doing your homework? Well, when one of my children was at school, their friend used the dog ate my homework as an excuse for not doing the homework. And the teacher, as all teachers would do, said, that's, that is, that's rubbish. Of course the dog didn't eat your homework. And he actually pulled his homework out of his bag, and lo and behold, the dog had chewed it. It was this dog-chewed piece of homework, can you believe? But normally, those excuses are just rubbish, aren't they? They are just excuses. So kids, when you go back to school this week, do your homework. No excuses. But perhaps the most common excuse for not doing the things that we should do, is the excuse of time. I didn't have time. It's not the right time. And that's the excuse that God's people have here for not doing what they should be doing. Look at verse 2. Look at the excuse. These people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. I mean, God shows his feelings about this excuse by calling them these people rather than my people. Do you notice that in verse 2? 
What they're saying, though, is that the time has not yet come to rebuild the temple. God wanted the temple to be rebuilt. It was, he's saying it's the time. It had been prophesied that it should be rebuilt. It was the way to worship him, but the people were saying it's not time. Now, nobody in Israel at this time disagreed that the temple should be rebuilt. What they were saying was, it's not time. And there's a layered meaning to this excuse. For some, the time wasn't convenient. August, when this prophecy was being spoken, was the harvest time. There were other things to do. There were children to take places and work to be getting on with and all sorts of things. It, it wasn't convenient to, to be doing God's work at this time. For others, there, was, there wasn't the money to invest They needed to earn more, to survive. They needed more money. And so that had to take priority over everything else. There's not time for God's house. I will get involved when I've got more money or when my children are older or when I haven't got to do this thing or that thing or whatever else it might be. For others, they thought that God didn't really want them involved because Jeremiah had prophesied that the exile would last 70 years. And in their calculations, 70 years wasn't quite up yet. And so let's just sit back and and God will do things in his time. We can do this. Jesus said, I'll build my church. He doesn't really need me to get involved. He'll he'll do it without me. (laughs) Someone else can get involved. Jesus will call them. It's not time. Matthew Henry uh, says, many a good work is put by by being put off. Many a good work is put by by being put off. And don't we use the same kind of excuses ourselves? I mean, we do live through seasons in life where we can be involved in God's work in different ways. That's true. Due to work and health and time constraints, caring for children and parents and and so on. There are seasons in life, for sure. But our involvement in God's work can change without ceasing altogether. And sometimes we can use our circumstances as excuses to not be involved in the work of the church. Well, in verses 3 and 4, Haggai shows how these excuses are fake. They are fake. They're not true. It's not lack of time. It's misplaced priorities. Because look at verses 3 and 4. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? There isn't time for God's house, but There's plenty of time for their own. You see that? Notice the people are living in paneled houses. Living means they are no longer building them. The houses are done. They're they're able to be lived in. And the paneled speaks of of luxury. Uh, These houses, um, to be paneled, meant that it was the kind of luxurious finishing touches to the home. So these houses are finished. They're luxurious. And the house of God is a mess. There has been a prioritization of their own luxurious lifestyle at the expense of God's house. 
Now, don't misunderstand what is being said here. This is not speaking against having and building a home. It's not speaking against bringing up our children and caring for our families and and working and all the things that we, we do need to do in life. And in fact, the Bible tells us that we're called to do in our lives. What this is speaking against is not seeking God's kingdom so that you can have that nice lifestyle that you want, so that you can be comfortable, because seeking God's kingdom is decidedly uncomfortable and inconvenient and sacrificial. Do you see? This is speaking about stepping out of our comfort zones, out of our zones of convenience for the sake of the kingdom of God. And it's true to say, and I think what Haggai is saying quite clearly here, we always have time for what we really want to do, don't we? We always have time for what we really want to do. I think one um, uh, thing we could look at, for example, is if you go on the settings on your phone, you can see how long, how much time you've spent on each item on your phone. If you were to look at that, could you honestly say to God, I haven't had time, God, to read scripture this week, or to pray, or to serve? That's a challenge, isn't it? So let me ask you this question. What excuses do you use to not serve God as you perhaps ought? Is it time? Is that an excuse? Is it your past? Some people say, well, my past sin or past hurts mean I can't serve anymore. That may stop you serving in certain ways, but it can be used as an excuse to not serve at all, can't it? Is your personality used as an excuse? I'm not a people person, so I can't be involved in, in, in work with, with people at church. Is your health, as bad as it may be, an excuse for not doing anything at all in service of God? All those things are genuine hindrances in life, but we can use them as excuses. And what we see here is a lot of those are, are fake. And so in verse 5, we see Haggai say something that he does a number of times in this book. Look at verse 5. He says, give careful thought to your ways. This is telling us to think about our lives and to stop and reflect. And as Christians, we should do this. Uh, In one sense, we should reflect daily, coming before God, thinking through the day that we've had and the day that's to come. And to to confess our sin, to think about what we're doing and how we're living. But also, as Christians, it's good at times to have more lengthy times of just sitting down and considering our walk with God and how it's going. So perhaps even in light of what we've been reading here, this week, can I encourage you to spend time with God in light of what we're hearing and respond to what we're hearing in prayer with God. Consider your ways. And what the people should consider is what Haggai says in verse 6. In verse uh, uh, 4 and 5, the excuses are fake. Here in verse 6, the excuses are futile. They are futile. Notice in verse 6 that there's a lot of work going on, 
but it's getting them nowhere. Uh, There are five conditions affecting the people. So notice, they plant but harvest little. They eat but never have enough. They drink but never have their fill. They put on clothes but are never warm. And then they earn money but put it in a bag with holes. I know that sounds like having teenagers, doesn't it? (laughs) But but for here, they're doing those things and lots of work going on and it just is futile. It just doesn't get them anywhere. And they seem to be cursed in the same ways that we read of in the books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, where God said if they disobeyed him, then curses would come. And what they were finding was their life rejecting God, their life not seeking his kingdom, was not really satisfying them at all. They thought that, I haven't got time to serve God, I'm going to go my own way, and when they did that, it just didn't satisfy. I'm going to read you a quote uh, from a film, and I want to see if you can uh, guess what this film is that illustrates what's going on here really well. I thought, by the way, this was quite a modern film, but apparently like 25 years ago it was made or something stupid. Uh, Anyway, here's the quote from the film. Uh, There be the chest, inside be the gold, and we took them all. We spent and traded them, frittered them away on drink and food and pleasurable company. The more we gave them away, the more we came to realize the drink would not satisfy. Food turned to ash in our mouths And all the pleasurable company in the world would not slake our lust. We are cursed men, Miss Turner. Compelled by greed we were, but now we are consumed by it. Does anyone know the film? It's Pirates of the Caribbean. And in the film, the crew of the Black Pearl are cursed because of stealing gold from a chest that was cursed. And the curse was such that they became literally... Uh, the walking dead, where they existed in some, um, some sort of, of half-life where the consequences were, as the captain said, the drink would not satisfy and the food turned to ash in our mouths. Now, Disney, who made the film, probably didn't mean it in this way, but it is an excellent illustration of what is going on here in Haggai. It's an excellent illustration of how sin makes people like the living dead in such a way that nothing in this cursed world will ever really satisfy our deepest thirsts and hungers. And that's the futility of our materialistic world. We're promised much in this chest of gold, but when we take it, it is futile. It never satisfies, and ultimately, It leads to hell where the curses of God meet their final fulfillment. And yet this is what so many are chasing after. What so many are putting first in their lives. Money and stuff. Is that you? If you're honest with yourself, is that the first thing in your life? How much more can I have? And the excuses that we make for not serving God then are a mask for a desire to live a life that is comfortable and gives us what we think we need above all else, more money and more stuff, and so we don't put God first. And so let me encourage you, renounce the excuses. Give careful thought to your ways. Confess your sin. 
and name the excuses for what they are. They are fake and they are futile. And so then we can move to what verses 7 to 11 call us to do, which is to reorder your priorities. Uh, Verse 7 is a repeat of verse 5, this time a call to consider how they should repent of their sin. And this call to repentance is given with three commands in verse 8. Look at verse 8. They are told, number one, go up to the mountain. Number two, bring down the timber. Number three, and build my house. Repentance here means obedience to the word of the Lord. They'd not been prioritizing building God's house, and so we're told to start doing that by getting on with the work. Uh, Sometimes we can make repentance far more complicated than it needs to be. We can think, what does God want me to do? He just wants you to obey his word. He wants you to obey him. The mountains here would have been where the trees were. Bringing down the timber then would have been lots of, of hard work. And serving God does take effort. It takes purpose. It takes resolve. It doesn't just happen. But verse 8 shows us that reordering our priorities is prioritizing obedience to the word of God. And by the way, that means we need to listen to God's word. Are you doing that? Are you reading the scriptures? Are you seeing what God wants for you day by day? If not, that's where we need to to be, isn't it? Well, after showing us how to reorder our priorities, obedience, Haggai then gives some encouragement towards it. And he does this in two ways. There is a motivation that's positive. This good will happen when you follow me. And then there's a motivation that's negative. This bad will happen when you don't. And the positive is found at the end of verse 8. So notice verse 8 at the end there, what Haggai says. So that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. So we obey, we seek God's kingdom so that God is pleased and God is honored. Now you might be thinking, well, how is that a positive motivation? Well, first of all, God is worthy, is he not? Isn't God worthy of of our worship? He is the Lord Almighty. He is the one who, who has blessed us with the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. He's, the, he's our Father. He is our God. He is worthy of our worship. But secondly, it's worthwhile. We are made for God's glory. To obey him is good for us. It's going with the grain of how we are made. It's living the life God intends for us to live. It is not the futile life. It is the life where we do find true joy and satisfaction in his service. We don't find joy in self-satisfied patterns of living. We find true joy in the service of our Savior. That's the positive. It's for our good. But in verse 9, we see the other side. We see God's discipline. When the people returned from exile, they had high expectations of of what life would be like when they come back to the land. They expected much. They were returning to the promised land, the land of milk and honey, but it turned out to be little. I don't know if you've ever had an experience where you expected much, but it turned out to be little. This happens to me all the time whenever I do any kind of online shopping. Uh, I remember one time ordering 
a pie from Tesco in my shopping delivery, and I thought I was getting like a bargain, like this is going to feed my family for a pound. Of course, what happened when the pie is delivered? It's like a puck of pie. <laughs> it barely fed me. I thought it was much, but it turned out to be literally, in my case, very little. Well, God's people here did not get what they expected because their expectations really were for their own selfish ends. Sin promises much, but always delivers so, so little. And the little it delivers is not good. And we read here that, that God blew it away. What they, they did bring back, it was not blessed by God, it was cursed. And so God tells them why. Notice verse 9. He says, Because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with your own house. Because of their misplaced priorities, because they were self-focused on their own little houses, they were not putting first the house of God. God disciplined them. And again, we can focus our lives on our own little world. And we can expect much, but we miss the blessing of being involved in the universal, eternal plans of God. Uh, I want to warn you against one mistake we can think about when we think about prioritizing and seeking God's kingdom. The mistake we can make is to think, I have an entree, and God is one of those things I need to fit into my life. You can kind of look at your life as a kind of jigsaw, and you say, well, I've got all these things to fit together, and I'm going to fit God into my jigsaw. If you're thinking like that, it's the wrong way of thinking altogether. God is not wanting you to put him in your jigsaw. He has a jigsaw. It's the, and it's a, a, a glorious jigsaw. It's the eternal plans and purposes of God and his kingdom. He wants you to get involved in his jigsaw, finding your place in his kingdom. It is not about trying to fit God in your life. You, God is your life if you're a Christian. You're not supposed to try and fit him in. You're supposed to live for him in every moment of every day. He is your life. We're not talking here about fitting God in. We're talking about seeking his kingdom first, which is your whole life. And because God knows that that is what is best for us, he lifts us from our own little houses, our own little jigsaws, with his fatherly discipline. And so in verse 10, he says, Therefore, because of your misplaced priorities, because you're not seeking God's kingdom, bad things happened. Notice in verse 10, it was because of you. Now, in a hot climate, the dew on the ground, in verse 10, was important for irrigating the crops. So when it was not there, the earth wouldn't produce the crops. And in verse 11, we see the totality of the land's produce was affected by this drought. So the grain, wine, and olive oil, everything didn't turn out as it should. Nothing they worked on produced what was expected. And notice who was responsible for the suffering in verse 11. God says, I called the drought. It was him. God was doing this. Now you may be thinking, well, isn't that a bit harsh? Isn't God being horrible? Isn't God 
doing something that is, is not very loving here? No. This is discipline in a similar way to a, a parent disciplining a child to steer him or her on the right path. Hebrews 12 speaks of this. Hebrews 12 says, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, and you have completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son. It says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastens everyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. And so if worship of God is what we're made for, the fatherly discipline of God to steer us towards worship of God is good, even when it hurts. It shows we're his children. It's worth making a, a caveat here, though. Not all suffering is because of our sin. Sometimes there are unexplained reasons. It's not always the discipline of God. But all suffering is designed to drive us towards God in some way. And so as we close this passage, let me ask you this question for you to think about. In what ways do you need to reorder your priorities today? The building of the temple is not what we're about today. We're involved in the work of Jesus Christ building his church, which he does through local church fellowships like our family here in Pelsall. Perhaps some of you need to think about prioritizing your giving in the life of the church. That was a big problem here in Haggai. How should we prioritize our giving? Well, the principle, I think, of, of 10% is a good floor for us. It's a place to start. We're called to be generous as God's people. Let me just say a word to, to some of our young people. Some of you have left school now, and some of you are starting work. Some of you have part-time jobs, uh, and even... Um, ones that are school, at school are getting pocket money, can I encourage you to, to start giving to God's work at a young age? Make that habit now. Start young, and you'll be blessed as you give to God's work. But it's something for all of us to consider. Do you prioritize your giving? Do you prioritize prayer? Time praying on your own? Time praying at the church prayer meeting? Do you prioritize your time? whether that be time to read scripture and prayer or time to invest in serving in the church. At the moment as a church, we are growing and there is a great need that we have for people to serve in all sorts of various ways. Uh, there's a need for people to join teams setting up communion, in giving lifts, in serving the tea and coffee after the service, in helping in the kitchen on the early services. We're, we're actually quite desperate for people to help in these areas. And that's something I would just ask you to consider. Can you help and volunteer in those teams in the life of the church? Uh, we'd love for you to help. And in fact, to help you uh, in that, 
I want to give you an opportunity to respond to this passage uh, in, a, in a quite a specific way. Uh, at the end of the service, uh, during the coffee time, I'm going to leave a QR code on the screen uh, behind me and up there, where it's a little bit smaller. And if you scan that QR code, it will link you to a form that gives different areas in the life of the church where we really could do with help. And if you are able to help in any of those areas, then you can fill in that form and submit it, and it will come to uh, me, and we can fit you into those teams. Now, if you can't use a QR code, don't worry, right? Paula has a whole bunch of physical paper copies that you can get from her and fill it in and then uh, give it back to her. And we would love to plug you in to serving Jesus in this church. So if you are able to do that and to help, and that's especially um, helpful if you're going to be a new member soon as well, um, it's a great way to be plugged into serving in the church. So I'm going to, I leave that with you to encourage you uh, to serve Jesus in that way. But what I encourage all of you to do this week is to consider our ways. Consider how we are seeking God's kingdom first. And it's wonderful that this morning we can come to the Lord's table where we remember the one who said this to his father, not my will, but yours be done. Because when we're talking about serving Jesus, what we're not doing is this. We're not saying, if I do this, then I'll be right with God. We're right with God because Jesus obeyed his father to the cross and died in our place for our sin. He did all the work necessary to save us. What we do is we respond to him in love and we say, Lord, through the power of your spirit that lives in me now, I want to serve you. And we respond through serving him with our lives and seeking his kingdom. It doesn't save us, it shows we're saved. And so this morning, we're going to consider the cross and the work Jesus did to save us. And we're going to consider him as we consider our response to him. So before we come to the Lord's table, we're going to sing together as God's people again. We're going to sing the song, Wonderful Grace, that gives what I don't deserve. And in the chorus, it says, as a response to that grace, all that I have, I lay at the feet of the wonderful Savior who loves me. So let's stand before we come to the table and sing together.